Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode of guests on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest on today's episode is Daniel Cook. Uh, Daniel is the chief creative officer at Spry Fox, who created uh, the amazing Triple Town and Alpha Bear and all kinds of other uh, amazing games. He also started his career way back when uh, working for Epic Mega Games, spent a bunch of years at Microsoft and uh, worked on one of my my favorite overlooked classics, the One Versus 100 Xbox Live quiz show where everybody played. Um, it's a honestly a, an amazing chat. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, analogies right i like i like people using analogies to explain things i find them very exciting uh, especially a good analogy it's just oh it's so satisfying um, and daniel daniel is filled with them this was a a really brilliant chat I, I i hope you enjoy i'm fairly certain that you will um as always thanks so much for downloading the show if you enjoy it please do rate and review on itunes um, that is the absolute best way to enable more people to discover the show, as is just sharing it on social media, telling a friend, all that jazz. Uh, genuinely, honestly, if you do like the show, please do that. It's uh, it's such uh, a help. Uh, if you really like the show, there's also a Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. If you have the money and the inclination, all donations are very gratefully received and go into making the show as good as it possibly can be. Um, if you'd like to get in touch, you can email it's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or it's at checkpointshow on Twitter or it's checkpointspodcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. Thanks as always for listening. I'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest. But until then, let's get on with the show. Well, let's let's not waste any more time. Let's get going. So, um, uh, is it Dan or Daniel? Uh, Daniel. 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 Okay. So, yep. Daniel, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, if you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Daniel Cook. Um, I'm a game designer. Um, I co-founded a studio called Spry Fox that makes games like uh, Triple Town and Alpha Bear. We worked on Realm of the Mad God. Steambirds, um, Bushido Bear, I'm probably Road Not Taken. I'm probably forgetting some other ones. Um, and uh, I've been making games for probably a little over twenty years now. So, what what did you do prior to Spry Fox? What's this? What did you do prior to Spry Fox? Um, so, prior to Spry Fox, there was I was at Microsoft for a long while. Um, I uh, worked at a company called Epic Mega Games back before they became Epic Games. Ah, okay. Um, and we, we that was back in the 90s. That was the shareware era, so small teams. Um, we worked on a game called Tyrion, which is a vertically scrolling shoot-em-up. Um, yeah, we were working on Unreal, and you know, projects get canceled. We've done a whole bunch of stuff. It's very um, exciting. Like yeah, to, uh, yeah. I mean, th- that kind of... Um 
like one of the things i wanted to do with this show was kind of speak to to developers and people who work in games and kind of try and by kind of tracing the games that they love kind of see how that has clearly impacted the games they've ultimately made and i i usually speak to kind of indie developers purely because it's easier to kind of see that authorship you know because the teams mm-hmm. are smaller so it's an easier line to trace um and it's really interesting like the way that has kind of shifted the way teams have kind of started small and then you know for a period they were massive teams and then smaller again and like the kind of contraction depend essentially depending on the technology available you know especially in the uk mm-hmm. where you know it all started with bedroom coders and stuff on home computers and now it's kind of gone full circle back around to that because the, the tools have become democratized yeah, yeah. I I grew up. Uh, my my first major computer was the Amiga, and all the best games came out of the UK. That was just like you know there was the Bitmap Brothers, and and there was all those classic sort of like pre PlayStation One uh, um, UK developers. It's um, interesting. And so like like yeah. that's quite rare for for the Americans. Like I, I in doing the show and speaking to so many people, there, there does seem to be a very obvious kind of. Um, delineation like people in america pretty much everyone seemed to have a nintendo at some point like they were just handed out to everybody whereas in the uk and kind of the rest of the world people i speak to it's much more kind of home computer based and mm-hmm. so it's interesting mm-hmm. that you had you had the amiga yeah and it's um i think it i think it leads to a, a very different sort of aesthetic for like what what is a good game absolutely um, yeah because if you look if you look at like the Nintendo stuff, I had friends who had Nintendos and Segas and so on and so forth, and uh, like that style of game is um, it's much more rigid. Rigid. It's yeah. like uh, you know, there's a line- It sort of comes from an arcade tradition because that's like um, you know there was like the the Atari uh, twenty twenty six hundred and some of those co- arcade games. They were all like, how do we put arcade games? In the from the arcades into the home, and so you had these single screen games, and then they have sort of evolved into okay, now we can do multiple screens, but it was still sort of this linear series of challenges that you kind of went through. Um, and if you look at like a Super Mario game, you can kind of see that, right? It's oh, absolutely, like, yeah. It's like a linear series of challenges. I was talking to someone who was raised on uh, console games, and they were they had this term it was like uh, a design term that they used it was like transition or transfer the idea that you could take an object from one screen to the next screen was this like radical notion like it was this <laughs> oh my goodness mind blown like i can use that power up that was over there over here totally changes everything but then if you look at pc gamers um or home computer gamers um like they were in a completely different universe, right? They had like weird simulation and strategy games and the idea of like having an inventory system where you used a resource in a different location, that was like completely obvious. Totally. That's really interesting. That that's that that's yeah. that's such a kind of uh an astute observation because it's so obvious and yet I've never really considered that before. But of course, like that's that that's a mind blowing thing that you'd have like some kind of inventory that would carry over rather than just run the gauntlet again and then run the gauntlet again yeah yeah and so like so that the the types of games that uh someone coming from a console background often thinks about are just fundamentally different like the the things that they're looking for in like i want to make a game is just a different thing than someone coming from who was you know raised on essentially you can almost think of it as a different religion right essentially yeah (laughs) yeah 
Uh, well, know, but so. before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I'm going to open the show like I usually do and uh, ask okay. you, Daniel, um, if you can remember, what was your very first experience of a video game? <sighs> very first one. Um, so they sort of blur together. So my brother had a paper route and he saved up a whole bunch of money. Must have been like at least a couple hundred dollars, which was an insane amount at the time. And that's he bought quite, that's a, a dedicated paper boy. Th- this was, this was a, a paper route in Maine, in rural Maine. So what that means is there were maybe 20 people on this entire long road that like got the paper so it wasn't like a city where you just deliver the paper to a whole bunch of people yeah. you basically get up in the middle of winter early in the morning like 6 a.m it's not even light out and it's snowing outside and then you drag like these this big giant bag of papers down this like half hour trek through <laughs> basically the wilderness to deliver things and like he was earning like he'd be get his like you know a buck a buck a week or something you know hardly any money at all from these people you know, and he made his tiny little cut on top of that. Okay. Um, yeah. And so, but he ended up saving up and bought a ColecoVision. And uh, the ColecoVision had things like Donkey Kong. Um, it had um, uh, Zaxxon. Um, and Zaxxon just like completely blew my mind. Uh, uh, Zaxxon um, was uh, one of the first isometric games. And so it had like this wild new perspective and like uh, it had these little like things that you could tell were floating. There were these floating sort of like enemies that would attack you. And like this idea of like three D space and like things could float. Just I, I you know I was I was pretty young <laughs> at the time, but it just I remember just obsessing during the summer times about uh, like figuring out how I could take like uh, you know like a yogurt container of some sort and like cut a hole in the top and maybe build some motors and and like some propellers in it and make it hover in some way. And I was like, this, I, this is going to be a thing in the future. But, uh, <laughs> that, I'm, I'm fascinated by like, I mean, aside from the fact you're kind of benefiting from uh, from your brother's labors, um, like because that was such an early console, like did he save with that in mind, you know, or, or was it oh. just I'm, I'm saving money and uh, okay, what will I buy with all this money? Oh, he was very much saving in mind. Like he was, uh, you know, following all like there wasn't a lot of news back then because yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't really have the internet. So things were sort of like there were rumors you'd, you'd be reading some sort of like game magazine or it would be shared uh, on the playground. Someone would bring in a game magazine that that was talking about, oh, we think in the next year, you know, this thing is going to be uh, coming out. Um, and the the ColecoVision was, was like the Amiga, like a lot of things that I've been involved with. It was one of these things that um, had a great promise, but it wasn't the mainstream thing. No, absolutely not. It, it was like, oh, you want you want the best, of the best. Well, there's the standard thing that everyone else is getting, um, but you really don't want the standard thing. You want the thing that's a that's a little more interesting. And uh, that was the ColecoVision. So uh, my brother went for that. And what was that kind of um, contemporaneous with? That would have been like the 2600 kind of era, right? Right. Was it yeah, just before was the... the NES maybe? Yeah, it was just before the NES. Um, I, I don't remember at what point the crash happened. Um, I'd have to look up the exact dates on that. But, it was like uh, early 80s, I think. Yes. Yeah. Totally early 80s. Um, and uh, yeah, that was... Uh, 
it, it was a funky device. It was, um, it had, uh, so they say it was released in 82. So quite, quite, quite a ways ago. Um, it had the keypad on the controllers. So there was a controller with this weird little like stick that stuck out um, and buttons on the side of the controller. But then it had a keypad with like almost like a phone um, okay. on the bottom of the controller. Um, and they had this clever idea, which is that you could slide in like little, uh, little pieces of plastic in on the side of that keyboard. It would cover up the keyboard and it would give you custom buttons for whatever game you were playing. Oh, like, like a sort of Starcraft overlay for a keyboard or something or, or a flight sim, you know, you get those overlays for keyboards that kind of change the keyboard into a controller essentially. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's ahead of its time. It's ahead of its time. Well, it was just it was just weird, you know. It was sort of like this strange little uh, thing. Um, hey, yeah, yeah. I do love that though. Like I always think that about the the Dreamcast, the the beloved Dreamcast. You know how many like the how weird the VMUs were for the Dreamcast. Like what what an idea! Like let's put this tiny handheld game within the controller that can have custom little games. Like it just is so. Like I just can't imagine anyone making that kind of thing now. You know. Yeah, yeah. It's just, I, I think I think Nintendo still does. Nintendo still. I suppose is, uh, yeah, they do carry that tradition. Yeah, they, they like if you look at the Switch, there's some deeply weird things about the Switch. Like, don't they have like a? Isn't there like a miniature camera on one of the controllers? Like, just things that are just kind of odd. Um, I but, love that. You know. I love that. That's that's the whole point. So so, but were you kind of hooked then with that with this uh, ColecoVision? Like, were, were you? <sighs> It, like was it a family thing or was it just you and your brother or it, it was it was mostly uh me and my brother um and my brother played it more it was more my brother's thing and honestly i didn't like games at that point i was i was sort of a little fascinated by them but for years i would just watch my brother play i would not like i'd pick up the controller and i would get frustrated with it and put it down and like i was not interested at all uh that all changed when we got the amiga um, and, uh, we were, we would, uh, there was a game for the Amiga called, um, the fairy tale adventure, okay. which was a, I don't know if you've heard of this at all. I don't it know was, that. Uh, no, I don't know that. It's, it's fairy tale spelled like F A E R Y. Okay. Um, and, uh, it was done. It was basically built by one game, one guy as many games were at that time. And, it was a uh, action adventure game, so it was a, a, a action RPG. So you had a character, you ran around. It had like real time combat. Um, the interesting thing about it is it had this vast world. It had like it was continuously scrolling through like fifteen thousand screens uh, of 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 world, which at the time was kind of overwhelming, uh, uh, amazing. It was yeah. kind of the no man the no man's sky of you know nineteen eighty seven or whatever it was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh and we would play that game and my brother was good at the c- combat and i was horrible at the combat um which stays stays with me to this day <laughs> um but uh he found the wandering around part and the exploring parts a little boring so what I, what would happen is i would go and like wander around and 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 go in a particular direction or explore a bit and then whenever the the enemies would attack i'd hand the controller over to him i'd be like no you take it and so it was sort of like the first time i really got into a game but it was also the first time i really got excited about like co-op and like playing together and it being more of a a bonding experience 
that's fascinating and I, I i just looked that up and it's kind of again it's kind of quite contemporary with uh with zelda i think zelda beat it by a year but that that's what i was imagining is the way you were describing that all i could think of was was zelda um so why uh, two questions so so why did you have the amiga and did kind of did you have kind of friends around you that all got the the nintendo like were you kind of the outliers we, we were definitely outliers. Um, so there weren't a ton of people uh, in this small town, small town, rural Maine, you know, uh, not not very many people. Um, so uh, there were there were a couple there was a there was a couple people who were interested in who had computers. There were a couple kids who had like a PC. Um, but, you know, that was back, uh, you know, CGA graphics and stuff. So yeah. the idea of color color was a radical notion. Um, the, um, uh, the Commodore 64 was kind of on its, its, its tail end at that point. Uh, the, the Nintendos, Nintendos, there was a couple people who had Nintendos. There was, I think one of our neighbors had a Nintendo. One of our, um, our, uh, other neighbors had a, had a Sega, uh, Matt, like a Sega master, master system. Um, so there was, it was kind of sparse, you know? Yeah. So um, how did you get, how did you end up with, with the Amiga then? So we again same same sort of process that we were doing before. There was a was it Byte magazine? There was this huge computer magazine called Byte back in the day. Okay, uh, super thick, like like an inch thick of just ads for like you know do it yourself computer hardware type stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they had talked about the Amiga, and it was again it was one of those things where it was like there was the there was the there was the reasonable choice. The, you know, the like you get a PC and you know you can use it for uh, your business and so on and so forth. Yeah. And then there was the the thing that was a little on the edge but had great promise, and and that was the Amiga. Um, and so the or I think our other choice at the time was the uh, Atari ST, um, which was another sort of like uh, Europe friendly uh, computer. Yeah, that I mean that's what uh, I remember from school is the the Amiga versus the ST. Um, and yep. the ST was definitely the outlier, and even though everyone would argue it was superior, like, Amiga was ubiquitous. Because I mean, part of that as well was because of um, the, the kind of the tape trading scene, the disc trading, the piracy and stuff. Like it, being in a small town, like did you have any experience of that? Any experience with what? With 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 piracy or with like you know copy discs and oh, copy games because oh, yes. that that was kind Absolutely. of ubiquitous like everywhere. In yes. Yeah, like I would not be the game designer I am today if I had if it wasn't for piracy. I think that's um, true for a lot of people I've spoken to, to be honest. Yeah, um, so we were we were essentially totally isolated. There was one other fellow who had an Amiga who was probably um, how far away was he? I don't know. He was probably like a half hour drive away or something like that. And uh, he happened to pirate things because he happened to, he was older and he knew some people. Um, and it's always so good he to know would, that guy. Yes. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And so what we would do is we would go over and have basically this, you know, uh, copying party and uh, just copy, you know, dozens and hundreds of discs of the latest random cracked games that were out. Um we would also buy games as well. We, 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 there was there were certain ones that we would, we would you know, we would lust after. Uh, Fairy Tale yeah. was one of the ones we lusted after. Um, I think the first text adventure, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, mm-hmm. uh, was our first text adventure. We lusted after that because we loved the book so much. Um, 
and uh, whenever whenever one of those games came in the mail, it was a uh, it was a week of excitement, you know, because you'd be waiting for the game to come, and then you'd be going down down. Our mailbox was at the end of the hill, so you'd go down the hill, you'd check the mailbox, and it wasn't there, and then you'd repeat that again and again <laughs> and again. Um, yeah, those were good times. Um, but yeah, yeah, piracy was piracy was huge because that that let me see this vast range of often very broken, but really intriguing, weird, curious experiments that were going on at the time. Absolutely. And, and like, given that you had this kind of uh, home computer as opposed to, to the console, like, did you did you begin to kind of like pick apart games and kind of get into the code and making little things yourself? I, I think that that's one of the most obvious distinctions is that people who grew up with, with home computers, you know, they, they tend to want to know how these things work and kind of get into the code and stuff. So, so I wasn't really into the programming side. Uh, my brother, my brother dabbled with the programming side a bit and then he kind of went on to the IT path. But for me, I was fascinated by the art. Okay. Um, so, because uh, the Amiga had uh, Deluxe Paint, which was this amazing uh, pixel art program, and uh, it had like uh, so the Amiga had like 32 colors out of like you know 16 million colors. You could have a palette of 32 hand selected colors to do whatever you wanted with, and it had this like it had the world class uh, uh, pixel art and animation tool yeah. uh, for very very cheap. And so what I would do is I would look at all these games, particularly the Bitmap Brothers. I was obsessed with some of the shading on Bitmap Brother games. And um, I would look at them and then I'd be like, how can, how did they do that? Um, and this wasn't the sort of thing where you could look it up. There was nothing, there were no articles on like, there is a tile, yeah. you know, like the, you know, it was like, oh, wait, they went and they assembled this cool picture out of little tiny pictures. I wonder if I can do that. Oh, it helps if they're all square and they connect together. And so I, I would spend just hours, um, so so many hours, just drawing, <laughs> drawing pixel art. You know, just pixel, 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 doing little animations, um, all that sort of stuff. That's that's amazing. And, and just to go back to kind of this idea of you know having access to countless kind of you know, random assortment of games essentially through piracy. Like, are there any that kind of stick out in your memories? Oh my goodness. Yes. Um, uh, star glider two. I don't know that, that one was this, um, it was a 3d, it was a 3d game. Um, and you could fly the spaceship, the star glider around, uh, and it had a really elegant UI. Uh, the Amiga, the Amiga mouse, unlike a lot of mice at the time, had two buttons, so it had a left left button and a right button. So the so it had um, so you could look around. It had it had equivalent of mouse look at the time, and you could fire with your left button, and then you could pull the throttle up and down with your right button. Um, and it was a it was a super elegant system for you know just flying around a 3D space. Um, but the neat thing about that one is uh, you could fly around a planet, but then there were tunnels and you could actually go into the planet. But then if you pointed your nose up at the sky, um, you could actually fly out of the atmosphere of the planet and now you were in the solar system. And there were space pirates and, and all sorts of stuff. So I don't, I don't remember when uh, Star Glider 2 was out, but you know, this, is, uh, this is one of those, thing, those ideas that keeps coming back again and again. Oh, what if you could fly down to the planet seamlessly? You know, this was back in probably like uh, you know, 1990 or so, and you could, you could do that then. 
Yeah, no, that's this has come up. Actually, just literally just a few days ago, I spoke to um, Ed Key, uh, who made uh, Proteus, and that was one of his kind of key games. Like, and and how this kind of this idea of being able to explore a galaxy is just—I mean, it's so intoxicating. Even even still now, obviously with with No Man's Sky and Elite and Star Citizen and all these games, it's you know that's it's one of the best things that games can do. I think is this thrill of exploration. From the comfort mm-hmm. of your your chair. 1988. That was 1988. So we've gone from 1988 doing it to uh, you know uh, 2016 or whatever when uh, No Man's Sky came out. It's and uh, same years. same, same ideas. Yeah, same exact ideas. So so how did your your relationship with with games kind of change as you got older? Like were they always a part of your life, or did you drift away at some points? Or I think um, so. I would always play games, but I, I, I don't think I, I, I don't consider myself like a like game playing as my primary hobby. Okay. Um, um, for, for me, games are this this amazingly fascinating space. They're almost like um, they're almost like mathematics or uh, you know some, something that's this in, intricate, wonderful, complex thing. Um, and I love um, I love exploring exploring them um, but more than anything I love making them so uh, I am I I, I kind of think of myself uh, always first and foremost as a game maker and less as a game player um, which which kind of warps my perspective on everything so like I play games I enjoy games but I'm always thinking in the back of my head like how would I take this apart how would I remake it into something else how could i take pieces of it and turn it into something interesting you know and i always want to explore the space that the game creates not necessarily play the game that's interesting so so, so when did that kind of start for you like because because it doesn't like there must have been a shift at some point i suppose because you were saying you didn't sort of dig into the code so so how did that kind of manifest itself i suppose so um, I, I right around the time I was doing pixel art, I was also writing up um, game design documents. So I, I would I would fill notebooks. I would write up, uh, you know, uh, like here's this game idea. I would build. I was really into um, building UI mockups. Okay. Of, uh, yeah. Um, which is not a very functional thing. This is in some ways, you know, some people would play D and D and fantasize that way. Um, I would go up to the, uh, you know, the upstairs near the computer and, and spend hours going and building these sort of like fantastical uh, games. Um, and uh, they had no chance of ever being built. Um, they were, <laughs> and they weren't very functional and the design wasn't very good. Um, but it was, it was sort of like, uh, uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a creative outlet. I'm fascinated. Me. Like, how did they... Like, what did they look like, you know? Because I, I imagine you're still quite young at this point. And, and if you didn't have the experience of, of coding, like how, like, I, I'm, I'm trying to just imagine, like, what the pages of those notebooks would have looked like. How would you have known, kind of, like, are, are you saying they're a game, a game design document kind of in retrospect, now you know how that works? Like, was it just sort of fantasy, like, oh, and then you do this, and then this happens, and then you press this button, and this happens? Do you know what I mean? Is that is that a too broad of a question? Well, well, I, I I knew I knew what other games looked like, so um, it was it was pretty obvious. Like there were these types of screens, and that they flew flowed together in a particular way, and 
you could do these types of things in games. And so it wasn't that big of a leap to say, well, what if you could do these other things? And like, what if the screens look different? And what, what would you need? What would the graphics need to do to support that? Um, and what would the interfaces need to be to look like that? I've, I've, I've got, I've got some of my old graphics from that time. I've, I've sort of up converted, uh, some of the old, uh, um, uh, bitmap files because they, they were what they were. I dot IFF files or something. Um, the uh, um, and one of them was uh, I had this one game called Star Trader where it was essentially a turn-based, uh, it was a turn-based hex-based um, version of Elite. Um, so you know you had uh, you had these little solar systems and you would you would have a little vehicle you'd run around and of course none of this worked it was all just fantasy in my head um, but I had all these intricate mock-ups of you know here's your spaceship here's how combat works here's the stats here's the trade screens here's the dialogue that 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 you'd come across all that sort of stuff that, that I, I'm just to me that just seems incredibly um, prescient of you I suppose like how old were you when you would have been doing this stuff. So that probably was, so I, I sort of started, that was like seventh grade. So probably around like uh, 12 to uh, onward, I, I, roughly. I, I, I don't know why I'm so amazed by this, but I am amazed by this, that that, that they were so, or, or from the way you're describing them anyway, that they were so kind of focused but but then i suppose they're just kind of they're, they're remixes so you're as you said you like to pull apart different things and combine them and stuff yeah yeah so it was um i mean a lot of it is is you know pretty derivative at this point uh but that's fine you know oh, when absolutely. you're learning that's how you learn yeah yeah when you learn you do uh it, when i when i got to uh college i i learned there was this uh and took some art classes um i learned there was this thing called a master study where you you find like some beautiful vermeer or whatever and you say like oh i love that painting i'm going to try to copy it exactly i'm going to try to copy the colors the brush strokes everything exactly um and by doing so you learn like wow it's a lot more complex than it looks um, and uh and but you learn you learn to see these these um these very beautiful masterpieces as like how they're constructed you know why they did particular things that just as a viewer you would never never understand you'd say oh that's a pretty picture i really like it but in the, by forcing yourself to sort of like confront the act of creating that sort of thing like you you build up uh, uh new ways of seeing and new skills skills for for making oh absolutely i mean, I mean like my version of that i guess is i was in bands and so you know you you just play cover songs and then you kind of even sometimes you might badly play a cover song and then be like oh hang on maybe we can do this and then suddenly you have a new original song based on this random like attempt at copying something that you love um, mm -hmm. that's fascinating so 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 did you go to university then with with this idea in mind that you you wanted to make games or, or did you go another path did that seem like a fantasy oh. still yeah, so at at this point, I wasn't even like the idea that people make games wasn't really a thing that was in the public consciousness. Like, uh, still not you to kinda, a huge extent, to be honest. But yeah, yeah, you like you know that games are made. You know that there's some people in bedrooms in England making games. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the idea, like, like um, while I was doing all this, you know, this is not something that I could like 
um, share with my friends. I could tell them about it. I told them about it. They didn't mind that I was doing these sort of things. But like, there's no, like, there's for hundreds of miles all around me, probably many hundreds of miles, there was no one who was doing anything like this, right? So the idea that you could go into the, the business of making games, just, that was a non-starter. Um, didn't even occur to me. Uh, so I went to college and I was like, well, um, uh, my father was a chemical engineer working at a paper mill. And, uh, so I thought, well, this engineering thing seems like a good thing. So I went into, you know, studying physics, um, studying, uh, you know, mathematics. Uh, so that was sort of my, my path. Okay. Um, and so I was like, well, I'm going to become a, a you know, I'm going to probably, I was thinking of becoming like a, uh, a computer chip engineer. That seemed like a hot new field um, that you could really like make your mark on. Um, and, uh, you know, it wasn't quite as boring as like sort of uh, industrial processes and stuff. Yeah. So, you know, chip engineering, that seems pretty good. Um, so for the first, um, first couple years, that's what I was doing in college. Um, but like right around this time, right around the time where I got to college, which was 92, 93, yeah. I should, I should know that. Um, the, um, there was this crazy thing called the internet that was taking off. Um, so the, there wasn't like war, the World Wide web wasn't around mosaic wasn't around. We had this, um, browser called, uh, links, which was a text-based web browser, um, so you could browse the, 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 this worldwide web idea, but it was like all text-based. Yeah. Um, there was, uh, I, I, IRC, which internet relay chat, which still is quite going quite strong. And so you could, you could join this random channel and talk about one of your interests with other people who had the same interest as you, which seems like such an obvious thing, but was just a total shock to the system. Um, and uh, for me, um, the group that I found were uh, a bunch of people in uh, Europe who were doing uh, demo discs, um, part of the whole demo scene. Um, oh, man, I love the demo scene. Yeah, so the, you know, you'd get these random people, and they would, uh, you know, there'd be an artist. I, I was usually the artist. There'd be an artist, a musician, a coder. And that, I think that was usually about it. And they'd kind of like contribute their art to make this executable that would be on a disc and it would look cool and sound cool. And that was kind of the entire point of the whole thing. Um, it's like doing cool things, neat things with computers. And of course there were competitions and there was, you know, that sort of that, 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 uh, you know, sweaty young man status thing that you try to go up, go up the ranks in the, in the competitions. Um, I don't think we ever did very well. Uh, but, uh, that it, the, it, was a group that like let us talk about um, computers and art and uh, making things with computers, um, and that started to get me down that dark, horrible spiral into uh, into professional game making. <laughs> so, so, just to sort of go back to like going to university, then. So, I'm assuming there weren't people around you in university that had sort of similar interests. Like, no, no. Uh, did did not you really. bring like uh, your computers or your consoles or anything to university? Like, did you? Was that kind of, not necessarily part of your identity? But you know, that's something people uh, will do. Is you know, if you're interested in games and you've not necessarily been around a lot of people that have been interested in them, you kind of you find your your people at university. You know. Yeah. Um, 
I um, I don't think I think for the first year or so I'm not sure I, d- I did because um, my, my brother my brother had the um, my brother had the computer and it was sort of the family computer and so he sort of took it with him and um, I don't think did I did I even have a computer for the first year I'm not sure if I did I used I used the computer lab computers a bit and so I got to know some of the you know the 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 people who hung out in computer labs. Um, but you never are, bought like a console or anything like that? No, no. See, I really wasn't into consoles. I didn't understand consoles. Um, con- you couldn't like you couldn't make anything with a console. So what was the point? Um, <laughs> it was it was kind of this like it it was like so. I, my parents were definitely not hippies. They were they were they were sort of salt of the earth main people who farm and you know like live a good a good solid pragmatic life yeah um but one one of the things that they uh, sort of like had was television wasn't really a thing for us like it was like we would watch we would we would watch television together on uh the weekends um and it was there were two shows that we would watch we would watch doctor who um which is, of course, the best show in the, in the entire universe. <laughs> and we would watch uh, the McNeil Lair News Hour, which is this curmudgeonly old news show on the public public uh, broadcasting. Um, and uh, that was kind of it. So this idea of like um, going out of your way for extravagant entertainment, like watching television or playing console games or buying a console just so you can entertain yourself like that was kind of like against the sort of the philosophy of being a mainer you know like that was not it, it didn't fit like you know this is this is a group that basically was a bunch of like you know puritan religious fanatics who like settled this place you know this cold desolate area like hundreds of years ago so like some of that still sort of like that thread sort of continued through and sort of like how how I was raised and how we see the world. Um, so the idea of like just getting a, it, it seemed it like I always I've always felt like uh, game consoles are in some ways slightly immoral. You know? <laughs> no, I do. I totally I totally get that. Um, yeah. but even still though, you know, as as especially like, you know, as a, a student going away to to university stuff, this is this is when you you go wild. This is when you kind of indulge all of your kind of uh, sort of darkest desires like were you not even tempted a little bit uh see see like i'm 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 one of those horrible people who like who who doesn't doesn't work that way um you have no vices daniel i i have i i have a vice i'm drinking coffee um that's that's one vice uh once a week i will have uh at least one cider or perhaps half of a half of a hard cider um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there are definitely You're dangerous some vicious, man <laughs> vicious vices in my life um but uh but uh yeah um but the so the idea of like uh, a computer was though that you could make things with it you could write on it you could draw on it you know like that that was a moral way to spend your time and effort that's fascinating um, I, I i love this kind of calvinistic attitudes to to technology um, so, yes. so, 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 how did that kind of, um, how did the the demos, I guess, then lead into to to, to the games? Like, was it? Did you go off and make chips, or, or did you kind of diverge at that point? 
So, so I, I had a choice. Um, there was basically, I, I had to decide whether I was going to go off. I had to actually transfer schools to go into a full engineering school. It was like half time at this like liberal arts school. And then, uh, the, the then the other three years would be at, at a, uh, engineering school. Okay. Um, and, and, uh, and I had this really hard choice to make. And right around the time I needed to make that choice, I had a, a friend of mine, Raymond Bingham. I don't know if he'll ever listen to this. Um, uh, who uh, ha- was, uh, you know, he, he was a writer. He uh, did a whole bunch of, like, he's a very creative fellow. Um, and uh, he took my art that I had been sending, and he's like, I'm going to send this off without Daniel knowing to this company called Epic Mega Games. And maybe they'll do some. maybe they'll uh, have something for him. And this um, is stuff you were making for, for demos and things. Yeah, this was, you know, like... Uh, we we had the the macabre music video where it was like dancing skeletons and weird demon heads and you know that type of thing. What was it? Did you have uh, a, a crew? What was the name of your crew if you were in one? Oh, megawatts. Megawatts, perfect, perfect. Okay. That, yeah, and now now imagine megawatts done in that like early '90s bitmap font. And oh, you know I can exactly. see it. I can see it. The 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 text kind of waving on the screen. It's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know exactly what we were all about. Um, so, so Raymond uh, sent off your art to Epic Mega Games. Yeah, yeah, and you know it's sort of uh, it's the sort of thing uh, Ray does, and um, and they they wrote back, and there was a small team um, with uh, you know Alex Brandon uh, and uh, um, J- J- Jason Emery, um, and they were making this shoot 'em up called Tyrion, um, and they needed an artist, and they're like, that was I interested in a uh, summer job, and I, I was like, okay, sure. So uh, I I did art for Tyrion. That was my first first gig in the game industry. And was it like, was it exciting? Was it like you 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 say that very matter of factly? And uh, as I'm learning, that may just be your personality. Like, but but were you kind of quite <laughs> excited by that? Uh, I was excited. Well, my other option was uh, working excited. The, the other previous summers, uh, I had gone back to my hometown, and the only real job there was uh, uh, working at a gas station. Okay, well, so, that's an easy easy choice like, to I make could, then. Yeah, so it wasn't like I was. It, it was one of those things where it was less like excited and more like, well, I guess I know what I'm doing this summer instead of working at the gas station. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I mean, I suppose what I'm getting at is that did you? did you see it as oh this is this is a better job than working at a gas station or was like oh here's this whole new world opening out in front of me i think it took me probably um it probably took me another like eight to twelve months to realize there was a whole new world opening up in front of me i saw it as a better job working at the gas station i saw it as an opportunity to actually do do the thing that i was spending a huge amount of time doing anyway um and like uh people would pay me i remember i could like earn like a thousand dollars a month or something like that which which at the time was like you know because i was living on on student student uh you know budgets yeah. at the time was like a wild a wild riches i was like i i, I am so wealthy right now with this thousand dollars <laughs> a month and you still did you still not buy a console of course not <laughs> what but- i did is I bought an Amiga 1200. This was the this was the the end days for the Amiga. So the Amiga wasn't really going on any longer. Um, but they had they had just released 
a uh, new version of the Amiga that was smaller. It was like a, it looked like a big Commodore 64 essentially, um, and uh, you could do 256 colors on the screen at once. Um, and so I was like, well, I, I'm going to keep doing some art, so I might as well invest invest in my future and get that that Amiga. So that's what I ended up buying. <laughs> and I'm just curious, like, given the fact that, you know, you, you're more interested in making things than necessarily playing things, like, were there games around this time that, that you would still play that, that, that had some sort of impact on you and the way you, you thought oh. about games? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I was I didn't stop playing games. Um, I still haven't stopped. Um, so uh, right around that time, uh, I remember down we, when we downloaded um, Quake for the first time, um, you know, like we weren't there was only one machine on the entire campus that could actually play Quake at a decent frame rate. And it was in one of the computer science labs. Um and so I remember downloading, like we downloaded Quake and played that. Um, and then there were, um, there were all these Unix-based games. There were these multiplayer tank games that we'd play over uh, over the uh, Unix terminals. Um, there was a, a multiplayer um, uh, uh, Star Trek game that would play. Um, uh, I pretty much lost the entire of my uh, freshman year to uh, MUDs. That was the other thing that was taking up my time other than like classes and IRC and all that sort of thing. Um, there was a, a text-based Daiku MUDs, um, so these multi-user dungeons. Um, and there was one of those that we played, you know, just an enormous amount of time. Just but I mean, so, that, MUDs yeah. are kind of like the happy medium for you, though, because you're playing a game, but you're also creating, you know, you, it's, it's this nice kind of middle ground for you. Um, right. I mean, MUDs kind of totally passed me by. They're... they're genuinely things that i've kind of discovered through speaking to people on the show and various other guests uh meg jayanth in particular who she she wrote uh, 80 days um the yes game. yes i love her work yeah she, she was yeah. she introduced me to this whole world of kind of muds that i just never knew existed that completely passed me by so that must have been super right. exciting oh m- muds are i mean so so muds were probably one of my first like all consuming uh game experiences that this like they completely took over my life um they uh it was it was it was an entire world out there right it was this these communities these new systems um the interesting thing about muds is again they're completely different sort of like genetic path than Mm -hmm. either the pc games or the uh console games um, MUDs were, they were text-based, so they were, weren't really about graphics or interface. Um, they were uh, multiplayer at a very fundamental level, which uh, early PC games were not. And um, console games, if they were multiplayer, were only local multiplayer. The idea of like interacting with a broader community in a persistent world over a long period of time uh, just didn't, it's very, very different thing. Yeah, no, um, they're amazing. Yeah, um, I think uh, I think the, my very first uh, uh, scripts were written on MUDs, where I started to understand like, oh, you can you can script your character and automate them and have do, have them do different things. Um, a lot of the early MUDs had were um, uh, um, the moves and such. Uh, they were object oriented, so they could like you could create objects and store objects within each other and create rooms that were objects and write text descriptions and so that, that was definitely a uh, a uh, an eye-opening experience all around 
That's amazing. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a, a brief detour for for a moment, Daniel, and ask you some uh, relatively quick fire questions. Um, so, okay, if you had to play a game with death for your very mortal soul, uh, what game are you best at? What game am I best at? Oh my goodness, I don't know if I'm good at any games. Um, your life is on the line here, Daniel. I know, I know. Um, I'd probably want to take my skill entirely out of the question because I know I'm not very good at things, uh, at this sort of game, and play Candyland. So it's just a roll of the dice. I would roll the dice for my life. <laughs> That's perfect. That's perfect. Um, we, we just touched on this briefly, but, but has there been a, a game that has kind of consumed your life to the point where you've had to kind of uninstall it and remove it from your your system yeah that was definitely uh the the epic mud uh, uh the daiku mud that i played uh my freshman year of college yeah that was uh that was all all consuming just hours and hours and hours playing that game um if you are if you are uh, prone to this kind of uh, gameplays like are you are you a, a competitive gamer have you ever been locked in a in the competitive high school battle? Um, I, with Tetris was one. Um, we, we had a thing going back and forth in, if, with Tetris at one point. Uh, the other one is Counter-Strike. Uh, used to be... Uh, uh, I was always a bad player at Counter-Strike, but um, I always wanted, desperately wanted to like improve myself. Um, the problem with Counter-Strike is um, Counter-Strike brings out a side of me that basically doesn't exist in any other context. I go from being this relatively calm, mellow person to this like raging, you know, just swear machine. who's just like <laughs> swearing and cursing everybody and using every little ounce of hatred in my body to like talk about how other people are bad. <laughs> and like, so uh, I guess Counter-Strike is another one that I've sort of had to quit because like it brings out a part of me that I didn't even know existed. <laughs> it's, a, it's a cleansing ritual. Um, yes. Well, that that yeah. leads us nicely into the next question, which is uh, if you're prone to such things, what is your worst rage quit? Oh, worst rage quit. Um... So this is a this is a, sort of gets back to uh, uh, my relationship with console games. Um, I've had a habit of buying Nintendo consoles. Like when I buy my first one was like the the GameCube, and so I buy Nintendo consoles. I buy like one or two games. Then I realize that console games aren't my thing, and then I stop buying them until the next Nintendo console comes out, and then I buy it again. Um, but um, one th one game that caused me to just like essentially quit console playing any sort of console game for years um, was uh, Star Fox Adventures, uh, which was this early sort of like, it was a, it was a Zelda-like game that was themed as Star Fox, which didn't make any sense. Yeah, that was um, always a weird one. That was a super weird one. And um, I, I actually didn't mind the game so much, but I minded sort of the, uh, the design philosophy behind it, which was... Uh, I was playing through and I was enjoying myself. I was exploring, having a good old time. And then at a certain point I got to an early boss and it was like, 
I couldn't get past their first boss. So like I would try again and again and again to get past this first boss. And they were assuming, you know, this is a boss intended for someone who has been playing console games for probably most of their life. So it was probably quite easy for most. But for me, I just could not get past it. And I was like, this game has completely and utterly destroyed my enjoyment that was building up. It's like it did it did a design choice that blocked me from playing. I never want to play this game again. I never want to play any game that's structured like this ever again. So that's probably been the most like like impactful rage quit I've had. That's the, 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 your kind of your your trajectory through video games is is really fascinating and, and quite unique um, amongst everyone I've spoken to so far. This kind of complete absence of, of console games, but it's it's fascinating. Um, okay, so the last one of the quick fire questions. Um, given games are you know theoretically capable of provoking all kinds of emotions, uh, comedy is often one of the the least utilized. So if you can think of one, what game has really made you laugh? So games, there's different types of comedy, like, uh, you know, like uh, adventure games. Adventure games are great at comedy because they, they're, they're allowed to have great writing. Yeah. Um, and so games with great writing can be hilarious. Um, so um, I was just playing uh, Thimbleweed Park. Um, by uh, uh, Ron Gilbert and crew, and uh, I, you know, it was it was wonderful, delightful game. I laughed a lot in that because it was like, oh, like you're allowed to have great writing. They have good voice actors. You know, the style of the game uh, enables that. Um, the other type of game that seems to seems to work well is ones with physical comedy, ones where it's just like you're you're laughing at the weird horrible awkward things that that uh, your character gets into um uh what's the one that i was laughing at uh have you ever seen uh, mount your friends yes i have seen mount your friends yeah that is mount, very funny that is a hilarious game it is it is it is just brilliant brilliant in so many ways and like like just watching people wobble up and where they end up and yeah it's just it's great the whole thing is great. So that physical <laughs> comedy is another thing that makes me laugh in games. Yeah, I mean, those are those tend to be the most kind of... Because uh, obviously I ask everybody this question and those are the two that come up. And the kind of the third one, which I don't know if it counts necessarily, is kind of uh, emergent gameplay, like things that happen either like through the systems of the game or most often through multiplayer, you know, like funny things that happen in a multiplayer game. Right, um, right, right. Where, where, like, someone launches a car off of a off of a ramp, and then miraculously it goes and it lands on a a a, a, a balloon or something, and it's just sitting there, and you're like, "That's the funniest thing ever!" Yes, <laughs> totally. Um, yeah. Well, okay, so let's let's go back to your working at uh, um, Epic Mega Games. Like, how how did your kind of uh, how did you sort of progress through games? Like, when did you kind of stop and start your own studio? I imagine it was quite a while after that. Oh, it was a while after. Yeah. So we were a small team. Like the way Epic, Epic was kind of a employee, kind of a publisher at that time. It was sort of a weird, weird thing. Um, so we were a small team of like the, basically three of us. And um, that's amazing uh, that, you know, yeah. considering what Epic is now, you know? Yeah, well, well, Epic was much bigger than that at that point. Epic had like lots of these small teams, so we were just one of the tiny little teams oh, off okay, to the side okay, there. Okay. Yeah, and um, uh, so um, 
what what ended up happening there is I was doing art, and then uh, we needed interfaces for our game. So, well, the artist does the interface as well, and so I started doing interfaces for for our game. Uh, and then it was like, well, we need someone to decide how the interface works. So you know, so we'd have discussions about that, but it would ultimately come down to whoever was drawing it would decide how it worked. And then at a certain point, it was like, oh. Um, we need to decide on our next game and what we're doing. Um, well, you, someone needs to do that. Um, and, you know, I'm programming and I'm doing music and uh, you seem to like that stuff. So why don't you go off and do some of that? And so then I started doing game design. <laughs> That's amazing. Just like, oh, yeah, we need someone to design the game. Why, you, you're not well, doing much. You do that. Yeah, because it wasn't um, game design. Again, game design wasn't a thing. Like yeah. no one, ta- no one really talked about game design. Um, you know, you were, there were programmers and there were artists and then they worked together to make a game. But you know, that whole worked together to make a game was this very vague undesigned, un, un, unnamed thing. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah. So then I started getting into game design and eventually I started considering myself a game designer. Um, and then it sort of went, went from there. So did you, did you make anything like did you design the games that came out like well while well, epic mega games uh, so so we worked on we worked on this um uh think this rpg for years called the circle um which was it was a really weird game um but it was a it was an action rpg um sort of in this dark fantasy world uh uh it used the unreal engine which was probably a mistake looking back on it um and uh we kind of fumbled around with that for a while something that happens in uh games is there's these um transitions to new technologies and the old teams look at the new new technologies and they say oh it's just a new technology we can handle that and then when they really get into it then they just fall flat on their face um and that's kind of what happened to us um we uh we got into 3d we were good at we were good at 2d um, but we really didn't understand what was involved in making a 3D game at the time. Nobody did. Unreal, Unreal wasn't even out. Quake had just come out, you know, a short while ago. Um, so this whole idea of like making a 3D game was kind of a, you know, you know, wild west. Yeah, I mean that that must have been. So I, I'm assuming that never made the kind of the light of day then. No, it didn't. And and I was crushed for. Yeah, that for must have like, been heartbreaking. Oh, that that shaped my life for years afterwards. Because um, you know, you you pour yourself. We were. It was also during the. You know, we were young. We were stupid. Um, we would. Uh, you know, we would crunch. We would do these. You know, eighty eighty to a hundred hour weeks working on this stuff for for you know years on end. It was just not. It was not healthy in any way. Um, and uh, at the end, at the end, I I, I basically crashed for like. I think I didn't do anything with games for like multiple years after that, um, where I was just I was just totally burnt out from the entire industry. So is that where you went to work at Microsoft? Uh, then I, then I went to work at I did a series of uh, uh, I did a startup company uh, in, in Boulder, Colorado that was also a game company, but then they started making art tools for games. Um, it was also that about around that time I started getting into uh, board game design. So I did some, you know, my own sort of like board games on the side. Um, I started writing um, uh, my game design blog, uh, lostgarden.com. Um, 
and uh, and then at that point, I, I went I went over to Microsoft, and uh, uh, and somewhere's around there, I started uh, making uh, sort of like smaller games over the internet with people on the side. So so I had a pretty big gap there in the middle where like I was like kind of out of out of uh, it was. It was weird. It was like I was halfway in games. My brain was thinking about games all the time, but I wasn't actually um, making games with a team commercially. But were you so still? It was like this... Sorry, carry hmm? on. No, no. It's just it was just a. It, it was a. Um, it, it felt like I was living a lie. Yeah. <laughs> but were you still playing games though? Like during this period like or, or was it that bad that you're like i need to just shelve games for a little bit at least video games oh no i was still playing games i was absolutely playing games yeah so so some of my counter-strike playing was during that time um pikmin animal crossing you know a bu- bunch of the bunch of those type of games uh, i think during the, the sort of roughly the you know that that gamecube era yeah that's a good era and like i'm, yeah. I'm just gonna you you mentioned sort of like like Pikmin and Animal Crossing like were there kind of were there games that came out during this period that kind of shifted your perspective in some fashion because obviously you started writing your 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 sort of game design blog and stuff so you're clearly fascinated with this like were you kind of I guess what I'm thinking is like was there like any games that came out that kind of made you think oh, I need to I need I really need to get back into games like they're, they're doing all this new amazing stuff like I want to be part of this again. So it was, it was actually kind of the opposite. Like I mentioned Pikmin and Animal Crossing because those were the standouts. I, I don't know, like everyone has a very different uh, perspective on like early 2000 than I do. But like right around, so end of the 90s, um, PC games started to crash. Yeah. Um, and uh, consoles started to be dominant, particularly PlayStation 2, that sort of era. Um and there was this really big um, consolidation in the game industry at that time, where there tended to be the, the whole idea of AAA started to really take off. The idea that there were big marquee console titles, and then everything else was complete crap. Everything else was like not worth doing, not playable, not interesting. This, this um, is kind of what I was but, talking about at the start, the way that, that it cycles, you know? You have these small yeah. teams, then massive teams, then obviously with the technology, you get smaller teams again. Right, right. And so this was during that time where you were starting to get the, 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 the smaller teams were all dying off. The big teams were growing. Um, but the, uh, the, I was really interested in innovative gameplay. Like, show me something that's new and exciting. I kind of wanted to capture that sort of crazy sort of Cambrian explosion that happened with those discs that we were copying back on the Amiga, where it was like, wow, look at all this insane stuff that people are doing. And during that time period, the exact opposite was happening. People were getting hyper conservative. I would go to E3 and because I still went to trade shows and stuff. And uh, um, I would just... My goal for the entire E3 was to find a single game that was interesting mechanically or design-wise or art-wise or something. And I would go through the entire show and there would be nothing. I remember one year I came back and I had seen Pikmin and I'm like, I am so happy because like Pikmin is brilliant. It's so obviously brilliant. And there's like someone who understands like designing from the ground up made this game. Um, and it's like uh, for that 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 was my gem that year. So uh, yeah, 
So, so how did that change then? I, I'm assuming it would have been kind of the the kind of the, the renaissance of the indies kind of you know but like many years later well not many years later like i guess five or six years later kind of like the the mid-2000s yeah. it started picking up again so there was a, there was another industry that appeared so before before the sort of rise of digital distribution in the current sort of indies uh, 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 renaissance that's happened um, there was an, another one which was um, uh, the pc downloadable uh, uh, sort of boom and that's the one that uh was casual gaming and pop cap and all that sort of stuff um so that that was that was a group that figured out a way to sort of break the stranglehold that the consoles had on the market and and come up with a different type of game that sold to a different audience and for a period of time um before big fish and all those companies sort of strangled that market to death um they were actually innovative and interesting and doing funky stuff um, you know, Plants vs. Zombies, and some of the, some of those games were uh, were quite quite intriguing. Uh, so I, I followed that that for a while, um, and that was sort of those. I think those as sort of the the original. The, those were the sort of the the they're they're the uh, what do we we talk about? We talk about the millennials and Generation X and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everyone everyone ignores generation X these days. Cause whatever, you know, um, um, the indies of today are kind of the millennials and the, like the, the small independent developers who are doing casual down PC downloadable were sort of the generation X and they were doing interesting things, but they're old now. So we've forgotten about them. Um, <laughs> but was that yeah. what kind of pulled you back in though? It was actually, um, it was actually, a, a flash portals that pulled me back in. Like 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 new grains and congregate and yeah. places like that. Yeah, because because I, I kind of in some ways went back to my my roots and I was like, oh look, I'm writing on the internet and so therefore I'm talking to people on the internet and uh, I started um, my art has always been a bribe like my art is just a bribe so that people will get listen to me so I started giving <laughs> away free art. And, uh, and then they're like, Oh, I'm like, Hey, art, I, I like your art, you know, that sort of thing. And then, and then I'd start up these little tiny, like, uh, sort of like, you know, one, two person things where we would, uh, try to make something cool. Um, and so we made, we made uh, a bunch of like little games, flash games. Um, uh, and that, that was enough to sort of get me back into, into, uh, making games full time. So uh, just to sort of set the scene though. So, so, so where, where were you like located in the country what were you you doing that kind of was away from games so at that point i had um i had moved back to oh well, not back i had moved to seattle so okay. um uh microsoft had captured me at that point microsoft basically goes and like hires people they sweep them out in this big thing where they put you up in a hotel and say look we're gonna hire you we're gonna give you lots of money isn't this wonderful best opportunities in the world you know you can make you can reach millions of people that's sort of their their claim to fame is that you can reach these very large audiences and change the world and what were you brought in there to, to do like what was your role that one, I was brought in as someone who was going to make an art tool, basically okay. a rough copy of Illustrator, maybe with a dash of uh, Photoshop in there. Um, that's that's one of the other things I'm interested in. I'm very interested in. It's always been like a little hobby of mine. Um, uh, making art tools, like designing art tools. What are tools that artists could use to make cool things? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, and that sort of ties back into that whole obsession with the deluxe paint and pixel art and, you know, that sort of thing. I think it's uh, like just, the, uh, just the idea of someone making a tool, you know? I mean, obviously that's a much broader term now with the internet and the ways it can be used, but, you know, that's kind of one of the exciting things about the internet is that suddenly people can invent tools again, you know? It's, it's not like, you know people and someone invented the hammer and they're like okay yeah here's this this works for this purpose but suddenly you can yeah. have a million different things for a million purposes well it sort of uh, it actually goes back quite a ways for me because uh when i was a kid i used to be into woodworking okay. um uh so um we you know lived in rural maine and um uh during most of my life um my, my father worked at the local paper mill and uh we were living in the workshop of the house that would one day be built. So my father was going to build us a house, but building the house took years, decades to build the actual house. So while the house was being built, we were living in what was the workshop for the house. You know, one, one day the dream would be that one day the place that we were living in, this little, you know, 20 by 30 space, um, would be uh, where all the tools were and dad would have his big workshop. Yeah. But for the meantime, we lived there. Um, for Surely most not of all within the same, like, not like a little house on the prairie style, you know, everyone around bunk beds in one corner and the kitchen on the other corner it was um it was close to that actually um we had uh you know there was like some very thin partitions that didn't go fully to the ceiling type thing that uh separated sections off but it was a pretty um it was a pretty tight little space um but as a side effect of that, the sort of like there was this huge house that was always being built right next door to where we were. And so there were always access to tools and woodworking. And so I grew up, you know, carving, drilling, you know, making things. Oh, cool. um, and uh, part of that is uh, if, you, if you've ever done any woodworking, um, part of what you do with woodworking, the way woodworking works is you don't build a project. You build jigs to build your project. Um, so you're constantly building these little mini disposable tools to make the thing that you want to actually make. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, so it's sort of like that. To me, that's like obvious. Obviously, you build tools to make things. That's just what you do in life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And do you, th do you think you made so, that comparison quite simply in your head that, you know, once you start getting into computers, like, well, it's the same you know, it's the same kind of process. I'm making tools to make things. I think so. Yeah, it was. It was. It was very obvious that you needed your jigs and your your systems and so on and so forth in order to go and make the thing that you wanted to make. Because you know, when you think about it, we're we're sort of uh, you know limited animals with blunt little fingers and everything. Absolutely. Um, and we can't really. And we can't like. You know, we're we're very bad very bad in general at manipulating electrons with our bare hands. Um, <laughs> but. But, you know, if we, we extend ourselves through tools, we can do amazing things. Absolutely amazing things. So, so how was um, the, the Microsoft experience then? Was it, was it good? Was it enjoyable? It, 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 was, it was fine. It was a bit of a culture shock. Um, I'm at a deep sort of fundamental level not a big company person. Um, I love building things. I love working with talented people. Um, I love like fluid, interesting work environments where you get a whole bunch of work done. Um, 
Microsoft, and this isn't specific to Microsoft. This is a big company thing. Yeah, it's uh, a bit more bureaucratic, a bit more political. Um, it had a tendency to. Um, uh, they did had, did these things called reorgs, where um, you'd be working on something, and then some vice president somewhere would get out of political favor with some other vice president, and uh, there was multiple levels of vice presidents and such, um, and uh, and then it would be like, oh, well, they're out, and then everything they championed and they were excited about would suddenly be like, well, we can't do that stuff anymore. Um, and so whoever took over would start to do their own sort of empire building and throw away everything that people were working on and, and say, oh, you're now working on this new thing. Um, That's so frustrating, and, uh, that kind of stuff. Oh. I mean, it's, it's so identifiable <laughs> as well. You can see it across all aspects of kind of any kind of large company, regardless of you know, what they do. Yes. Yeah. So um, so to that to that, I wasn't a, like. Some people were able to uh, negotiate that sort of space, that sort of constant political space, and and that just wasn't for me. That's not my that's not my skill set. So, um, sorry, carry on. Yeah. So so at that, at that point, like um, I actually switched over from doing um, tools. After a couple of years, I went over it and started uh, working on uh, in Xbox, uh, making games again. Um, and there, there we had some like they were trying to uh, they were trying to get more casual players onto the Xbox because the Xbox was always uh, the marketing behind the Xbox was it was intended as a um, especially the first one the first big black box. So this Xbox. is the original Xbox you would have been working on. I was working on no, I was working on the 360. I think okay. Yeah. So the original one, they had a problem. It was intended as a wedge console. Like uh, what they looked at is they looked at the market. They looked at Nintendo and they saw that Nintendo players were aging up and um, Nintendo still was making games that were sort of uh, more like had a childlike glee about them. Mm -hmm. So um, Microsoft had this sort of marketing strategy where they said, what we're going to do is we're going to put this like you know, very male, very like aggressive, hardcore, sort of like we're elite, you suck type thing going on. And we'll be able to go and split the market. We'll be able to split Nintendo users off and actually sort of like push Nintendo on into the into the kitty realm. Um, and therefore we can capture a segment of the market that and, and have a third, uh, basically a third player in a market that had until that point been owned just by uh, Sony and Nintendo. Do you think they would have spoken about uh, it in such kind of mercenary terms? In Inside they would. Inside the company they would. Outside they would not. That's fascinating. Uh, yeah. Um, but, uh, but as a result, when they wanted to broaden their market, they were stuck with this, you know, this uh, very, very male-centric, very... Uh, um, sort of like, you know, mountain, the Mountain Dew drinker, gamer. Absolutely, stereotype. Yeah, yeah. And they still haven't uh, really shifted that image, to be honest. But Well, they tried really hard. They tried with things like Connect. They yeah. tried. Uh, we were part of a, a sort of a, a multiplayer uh, thing. Uh, the, the group I was with made a game called One Versus 100, which was this Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah, it's a massively multiplayer game show type thing, right? This has come up on the show before, and I was actually talking about it with someone uh, just a few days ago. Someone at, at the BBC, funnily enough, uh, here in Scotland, someone who, who develops quiz shows. And they, they just seem to be like, how on earth wasn't that the biggest thing in the world? I, like, I don't know, because I thought it was such an amazing thing. 
Uh, yeah, it was, it was I mean, again, and that, that was a classic example of something. There was a small team that worked on that. They did amazing work. Um, and they got it out there, and players loved it, and then internal politics shifted. Um, and uh, it was no longer the goal. Oh, man, so, it's so disappointing, because <laughs> there's so much more potential in that arena. You know, there really is. Yes, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. Um, uh, so while all that was happening, um, I didn't find uh, Microsoft particularly, you know, uh, satisfying as a mm -hmm. as a place to work i was working on lots and lots of side projects um lots of flash games uh lots of writing on my blog um just you know really digging in deep into like hey we can make stuff uh let's make stuff and let's test out some of these design ideas that have been brewing brewing in the meantime um and uh and it was kind of amazing because Microsoft had promised, hey, you can reach millions of people. And then I was releasing these tiny little Flash games, and I was reaching millions of people. Um, like, almost every single one that we released had at least a million players for it. And what sort uh, of games were these that you you releasing? Uh, we released one, which was sort of a... Um, uh, it was a kind of like my wife likes fishing, so I was like, "I'll make I'll make a fishing game." I've never made a fishing game, so we made this cute little fishing game called Fishing Girl, um, and uh, then um, we did another one, which was called Bunny, um, which were, you were these uh, sort of this. It was this little post-apocalyptic landscape where you were little bunnies trying to like resurrect the land, um, and it had all these little adorable characters in it. Um, I still get emails for that one. Um, hmm. it, it, at this point, Flash has sort of gone offline and stuff, but people people loved that. There were forums dedicated to it. They would people would play games that had nothing to do with the game itself, just the world. They would role play within the world of that. You know. Oh, you must have been um, thrilled about that. Oh yeah, it was it was it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. Uh, we released one called uh, Steambirds which was a uh, turn-based aerial combat game. I think that had like 15 million people play it or something. Um, and so, so it was just this, this wonderful sort of like um, very affirming, um, very exciting time to be making, making essentially small games, you know, that kind of went completely under the radar of anybody who was talking about games. And were you were uh, you playing these games as well? Were you like discovering new exciting things? A little bit, a little bit. I, I would play them again. I was playing them more as a uh, as a creator. So I I would play them to understand what they were doing and why they were doing it. Um, but th they were like at a certain point, uh, I feel like your brain starts to understand the loops and cycles and random drops and all the systems that are happening in a game. And uh, um, a player might play through a game and say, oh, I understand what it's doing, um, but I still enjoy this and I'll kind of keep going. And I keep seeing like those subtle variations are, are very meaningful to me because I'm not really processing what's happening underneath. Um, when they, with, as, a, as a game developer, you start to process what's happening underneath and you kind of like get the whole, the whole of the thing almost immediately. It's like, oh, I've seen, I, like you can almost tell after playing a game for like five to 15 minutes, what it is. Right. Um, 
you know, what the influences are, where it's coming from. And there's often not a lot of surprises if you play further. But that's, I mean, uh, that's like a, almost the whole meta game in and of itself, you know, this kind of the, the analytical game of figuring out like what works, why it works, how they're doing it, what little tweak they've <laughs> introduced and stuff. Oh yeah, and 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 some of the some of those early games were just you know absolutely brilliant. Like uh, they 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 didn't always know what they were doing, but they were very willing to experiment. Um, and because of that, uh, if you actually look at a lot of the 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 mobile genres that are popular right now, uh, they come from those flash games. Those early flash games were basically taken, and the mechanics were shifted over to mobile. Um, and so there's there's clear DNA going back to that that sort of early that wave of experimentation that was going on. So, so what made you kind of you know that that seems like quite a nice setup. You know, you have a, a a good job, presumably quite well paid and stuff, and yet you still get to work on these projects mm-hmm. on the side. So what kind of shifted you to kind of start your own little studio? You know, that that seems like much more of a commitment. <laughs> I think it was uh, just the idea that I'd be able to work on things uh, full time. Um, the uh, the work at Microsoft wasn't fully it, it didn't it didn't satisfy me. You know, I, I wanted yeah. to I wanted to like put everything into these games. I wanted to like just be focused and passionate one hundred percent of the time. And uh, um, by switching out of Microsoft to doing like spry fox um which is what, what eventually happened um that that's exactly what happened i was able to like focus and sort of like do exciting things all the time as opposed to you know 20 percent of the time and um it, do you think it had anything to do with um like mobile like the kind of birth of mobile gaming i'm not, I'm, like, I'm not sure what the the timeline is for the start of the studio and that kind of not not really mobile came a little later um okay. So, so mobile was just the, the idea. I don't even know if you could really have released games on mobile at that point. Um, so when we started Spry Fox, we were originally focused a lot on, um, again, on the web because that's where I had had a lot of success. So we, we were doing a lot of things on, um, you know, just release it on the web, which to this day is one of the best platforms I have ever, ever worked on, both in terms of like the type of people you could reach, the, um, the quantity of people that you could reach, the amount of money that you could make. Um, it, had, it had something that is very uncommon today, which was a, um, it didn't have a monopoly on the platform. There were lots and lots and lots of portals um, targeting many, many different types of players. So there was no one single gatekeeper um, if you failed one place, it wasn't the end of your entire company. You just go to another portal. Um, and there were dozens and dozens of wonderful, huge portals. And how did that work? Um, now, because I don't remember, like, are we still talking kind of flash games and stuff? Cause for me, I'd go to is, a portal this, and you just, just play. Yeah. I yeah, don't remember is, paying for like, anything. So, so where did the, where would the money have come from? Oh, so this was uh, microtransactions. Um, ah, so you okay. could, yeah, so this was early days of uh, early days of microtransactions. Microtransactions were a radical idea, but um, you could basically put up one of these games and it would go on one of these portals. Um, and uh, like at, at one point, they literally had a um, uh, like a, a list 
um, uh, like a text file someplace of where you'd stick your game up. And then all these uh, portals were desperate for games, so they just searched through the list and be like, oh, here's a URL to a game. They'd grab that game and stick it on their portal. Um, so distribution was super easy. Uh, and you had portals specializing in games for women. You had portals specializing in, you know, hardcore games, kids games, teenage games, you know, old person strategy games. You know, it was it was very diverse sort of heterogeneous uh, population of portals out there. Um, and then if you had a successful uh, microtransactions model, people would play the game for free and then you would upsell them on something um, and then they would pay you some money. Um, which I thought was incredibly fair because I, I came again. I came from the shareware days, and the idea like let people play for free, and if they find value, they pay you money, um, which always struck me as a pretty reasonable way to uh, sell games. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I think the reason people get a bit uncomfortable with it now is because the the model has shifted. In you know, you design games specifically to get money out of people, and you, you know, you're not really necessarily thinking about what's the best game i can make you're thinking how's the best how can i best get money out of people well i mean that's a lie we tell ourselves i mean to be completely to be completely honest like we're having worked on retail titles the exact same thing happens on retail titles like we build retail titles to sell um and like whenever we have a producer saying, here are the business goals for the title, um, yes, there, there are people within a company who are isolated from that. And then they complain, oh, produ the producer and the business guys are always telling us to do all these things and make all these compromises. Well, that's just – that's making a game to sell, right? So we, we kind of like talk about uh, premium and retail games as if they're pure – they are insanely compromised by commercial interests at a deep, deep fundamental level. So that's that's just. I mean, this is this is the reality of making commercial art. Um, that's that's good. I'm very excited to hear you say all this, Daniel. Um, just because it's very, I don't know. It's, I think it's a it's a very honest way of looking at it. Like, but, but clearly, this is something like you you think about a lot. You know, you, you have. Um, kind of symposiums you you're interested in in the design of games do you think intrinsically that games are kind of no how can i phrase this question based on what you're saying there that everything is kind of compromised by making uh, art to be to be sold do you think there exists a type of game or you know a, a design tactic that completely ignores that that we just don't see i i think i think it does as soon as you're um uh, you can sort of think of it as, a, as a, a game as an animal in an ecosystem that has to eat to survive. Okay. Um, and uh, and if that ecosystem is fundamentally capitalist and is driven by marketing and like money, then that animal is always going to be influenced by that. Like it is, it is kind of inevitable. Now there are ecosystems that aren't. Um, built that way they aren't necessarily about money in the same in the same obvious ways yeah. like if you look at um art art ecosystems art ecosystems are also driven by money but the money flows through sort of status and reputation um and like whether or not you're uh the artist is a is is excellent at talking at parties you know that sort of thing yeah um so that that shifts 
the folk that that uh, morphs that animal in a different way, right? Like the the animal that survives in an art scene is one that's delightful to talk about with rich people at parties, um, <laughs> um, and. And like that, 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 that puts a certain sort of pressure on that type of creature. Um, and it, it shapes it in a different, a very different way than sort of money and marketing might shape it in like steam, for example. Yes. That's, that's a very exciting, uh, analogy. It's just that, 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 that it's one of those very satisfying things that you kind of, when you kind of know something and just haven't quite got the grammar to say it. And then somebody does, and you're like, oh yes, exactly that. I'll be using that I mean, analogy again. Well, well, if you think of game design, if you think of most types of design, um, one of the most important things is not creativity. It's creativity within constraints. Um, and so anytime you're making a game, you say, well, what are my constraints? You know, like what, you know, what, <laughs> what, what are my limits? What are, what, you know, and, and sometimes we'll set arbitrary constraints on our stuff. Yeah. We'll say like, I'm only going to use four colors, you know, why? Um, but, uh, if you go back to early games that they're like, you're only going to use four colors was sort of more of a, you know, hardware real constraint, but we can set aesthetic constraints as well. But either way, I think our work is meaningful and interesting because of how the, we cleverly uh, and wittily adapt to those constraints. Uh, and business, to me, is just another constraint. It's just another like, oh, wow, it's, it's, it's the equivalent of having four colors on a CGA monitor. It's like, oh, you have to make some money. Okay, that's an interesting constraint. Let's see what we can do within it. That's, that's amazing. So, like, I'm assuming, because I don't really remember having microtransactions being a thing until mobile basically um so when you were doing this on on the internet basically like through through sort of flash game portals was it did it feel like you were creating a new thing like because it it would have been kind of early on unless there was a precedent before that that i'm not aware of it did feel like we i mean other people were doing this we were we were by no means the first yeah um there were um, uh, so uh, like there were MMOs. MMOs had been doing this for a while. Um, it sort of as as a as a practice, it came over uh, in large part and was probably developed more in um, uh, sort of uh, Asia, Korea, uh, China to a yeah. degree. Um, because they, they didn't necessarily have um, they didn't have extensive retail distribution, um, so they had uh, you know a lot of uh, you know places where you could play games, and then well how do you get people to play games? Well the games are free because copying is so prevalent. So how do you actually make money off of something? Uh, so having people hook up to a server and uh, pay a microtransaction uh, was or an in-app purchase, as they're called these days. Um, it, it was was a was a great a great thing. You know, it allowed it allowed the game business to flourish. Um, so MMOs were the ones were that I knew of that were doing doing this a lot. Um, and then uh, it also started taking off in Facebook with the uh, social games started being a thing. Oh, of course, yeah. Uh, yeah, so so that that was obviously uh, another option, another area where these microtransactions, and that's sort of where where some of the evil seeped in as well. Um, any technology is uh, sort of neutral; it could be used for good, it could be used for evil. Um, and in the in some of the Facebook games, you started getting people who weren't interested in making. Um, 
making good game experiences. They were interested in extracting money. Yeah. Uh, and so that's what that's what they optimized for. But um, but the original idea of like, oh, microtransactions, that was not necessarily good or bad. It was like, hey, there's a free game. How do we make make money off it? And and honestly, a lot of the early early experiments were um, uh, uh, things that I don't know if current microtransaction buyers would recognize. Um, some of them were very shareware like. Um, which was on the simpler side of things. Yeah. And then so, some of them were uh, these really complex uh, MMO-focused uh, dual economies where you had, like, complex, like, you had you had time currency and money currency, but there was, like, player trade of currencies. So there was these whole full-on auction houses and trading experiences with uh, various types of currencies. Um, probably closer to what you see in EVE, uh, as as okay, a way okay. of monetizing, yeah. No, I mean, I I, I totally agree. Like, I I think um, yeah. a lot of my favorite game experiences of the past couple of years have have all been based on microtransactions. You know, stuff like like Clash Royale and and Hearthstone are, are games that I play almost daily, and you know, and they're very very good, very enjoyable games. They just happen to make the money in a in a different kind of way, and 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 Triple Town as well. Like, I mean, I, I I said to you when I first emailed you, Triple Town is is part of a, a a very exclusive club of games, along with like Drop Seven, um, that I had to delete mm, from yeah. my phone because they were taking over <laughs> my life too much. Like, it, it was that that good. Yeah. Yeah. It's um yeah and 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 Triple Town a lot of Triple Town was a, was one of the was of that era where I was designing games to uh you know I wanted ones that were simple to get like the the, the Flash sort of ecosystem had some rules associated with it um, it had to be relatively easy to get into um, because people could leave your game in thirty seconds and not care. Um, and uh, it, we also wanted people to play a long time. We wanted uh, we wanted good ratings, and we wanted people to play a long time. So those were sort of some of the the constraints that were placed on a game. And so Triple Town was one of my experiments to try to like hit that. Oh, you you succeeded. It's it's uh, it's really such a wonderful game. And like, did did, did you find it, it to be like a massive shift moving from the web onto to mobile? Or did you find the translate they translated you know quite well? So, uh, whenever a new platform comes around that has a new input sort of metaphor, yeah, um, you see the you see the game industry sort of explode and be like, oh my god, it's everything's different. We have to learn everything all over again. Um, but if you've been through a couple like um, platform transitions. You kind of know this is just this is kind of par for the course. It's nothing like this. This sounds horrible, but the design practices for VR are not that different than the design practices for mobile, which are not that different than the design practices for like the weird PC crazy variants that ex- existed over the years, or moving from uh, PC to console, which was a total shift for a lot of people. Um, like these are all just like it's the same core design principles just applied to a new way of doing things um, and so we I think the main port for <laughs> Triple Town um, Triple Town was intentionally built 
to be easy to port to multiple platforms and multiple types of input. Yeah. Because uh, it's basically a super simple like tap or click. Um, so uh, I think we ported the whole thing to mobile in like six to eight weeks, something like that. <laughs> um, we were like, oh, time to move it over. And there was interface stuff that you have to solve, but you just approach it like you do any other iterative experimental thing. You're like, well, let's try some stuff quickly and see what works and what doesn't work and, you know, play with it. Um, there's a there's a phrase that we use in, in inside the company. It's like, well, I don't know what we're supposed to do here. Well, let's play with that thing for a little bit, you know, just to understand what it's good at, what it's bad at, um, what might work. Um, so we did the same thing. We did the same thing with mobile, which isn't to be dismissive. It's just it's part of the process, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and do you think, like, like in terms of of uh, you're saying it's it's not a huge kind of not necessarily a huge leap the design principles are the same between platforms but were there did you discover things on mobile that that were new like are there there must be there must be new things in in some platforms that kind of excite your your imagination like new potentials um, so mobile's interesting because it's with you all the time I think that that's the part that sort of excites me the most. Um, like I, I love the tactile feel of the, it's, it's got a different game feel, if you will, um, of, of touching the surfaces, you know, like it's very, it's a very holdable, strokeable, touchable object, which is kind of nice. Um, these, these are in some ways, um, surface level aesthetics though. So, um, I don't know. I like, a lot, a lot of, um, a lot of the game design I'm interested in is about like connecting people and doing it through these sort of uh, um, systems of, of economics and resources and interaction and skill and mastery, um, and the a lot of that happens in the player's head, and the the the, the device is sort of like the first layer that you have to get through in order to have the good gameplay, the wonderful gameplay, the meaningful gameplay happen in the player's head. Um, so I'm concerned with the, um, with the platform and the device, but ultimately like the thing that I'm looking for, the thing that I'm searching for as a, as a creator is, is all happening in the player's head. Uh, and so, so really it's like, how do we, make the dice device work to engage the player's mind um i don't know if that fully answers the question no no it does it does i mean i i suppose like i i'm i'm both kind of i really enjoy like how how much you've clearly thought about all this and how kind of um kind of well thought through your, your kind of your design processes clearly but i'm just wondering like because of the speed and the rate of technology and stuff, do you think, like, has there been any games or experiences, I guess, over the past, say, 10 years that have maybe introduced something new to you or kind of changed the way you've thought about some kind of design aspect or some kind of element of games? Oh, that that happens all the time. That happens all the time. Uh, so, so here's one uh, that we worked on. That was just a fundamental shift in how I saw saw the world, uh, saw saw game design. 
Um, so I had played MUDs, but I had never built an MMO. The chances that you, the, the the opportunities to build MMOs are very rare. Yeah. Um, they're not. There's not a lot of them made, and uh, um, when you do make one, usually you're part of this huge team, and so you just don't get a chance to like explore like why various choices are made. Um, that's this is one of the reasons why uh, MMOs of all things are extraordinarily like hidebound. They're very stagnant design um, because like they're super risky. They involve huge teams. They're not made very often, so don't take any risks. Um, so we worked on a game um, with uh, a crew uh, named uh, Wild Shadow, which was two developers, um, uh, a game called Realm of the Mad God. Okay. Which, which was, a, um, it was, a, it was a flash MMO, uh, so you could run it in the web browser. It's still going today. Um, and it was a, uh, a, a shoot-em-up, so it was a sort of dual-stick shoot-em. You moved with, your, uh, with WASD keys and sort of pointed with your mouse. It was sort of fantasy, so you had these little like 8-bit graphics. Uh, so it was cooperative. So it was a cooperative action MMO shoot-em-up. Uh, so you couldn't hurt anybody, but you could only help. Um, and it was bullet hell, so there was you know, bullets everywhere, and it was kind of madness. Um, and it was permadeath, so it had a kind of roguelike elements going on as well. Wow. Yeah, so there's a lot of lot of experiments happening. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, but one of the things that like I didn't really expect to the degree like that had occurred is we we built these little tiny worlds. And a lot of our worlds are super constrained, and we know exactly what's going to happen within them. You make a little room, it's got a puzzle, the player solves the puzzle, they don't solve the puzzle. You tweak the design so they solve the puzzle more often than not. And that's, you know, a lot of what game design is. Um, But in an MMO, you build these little worlds, and then players do just completely batshit crazy stuff with them. (laughs) Um, they um, they form. We had a mafia form within the game. We had you know trade trade wars happen. We had um, memes like you would not believe spreading <laughs> back and forth across the the forums. Um, it was this this explosion of culture. Um, people made friendships in that game that they still have to this day. That that they are like we. I think I is that the one that did we have. I don't know if I can I vaguely remember us having someone married in that game, but I'm, I, I can't 100% be sure. Um, but it was just this like, um, it was kind of like instead of us making a game and then pe- inviting people into the game and then doing the things that we expected them to do, um, it was, um, it's almost like we planted a seed and then boom, this just vast society grew up out of it. And so when that happened, um, I was like, "Ooh, I want to do more of that." So, so that that's that's an example of something that's really completely changed my perspective on, on games going forward. That's that's amazing. Um, so, so, what are you kind of bringing us up to date? Like, what are you currently working on? What are you excited about? So for the past three years, we've actually been working to a. I, I think of it as kind of a spiritual sequel to uh, Realm of the Mad God. Um, where uh, we're taking our um, our Steambird sort of airplane IP that we had before, and we're making a another shoot 'em up, another MMO uh, bullet hell shoot 'em up um, with airplanes this time. It's more of a more of a 
diesel punk uh, sort of uh, uh, World War Two esque sort of fantasy space. I'm liking um, it. Yeah, and so so that that's that's we're chugging right along on that one. So that's that we've got, we've done a couple private, uh, private alphas for that and look, looking forward to releasing sort of end of the year, beginning of next year sometime. And is that just on, um, on sort of PC and Mac and stuff? Yeah, that will be PC and Mac. That'll probably, probably be very steam focused type okay. type game. Um, and, uh, then we're also working on another MMO, which is, uh, in a different space. This was in uh, VR actually. Oh, exciting! Um, it's called. Uh, it's called. Yeah, it's. Uh, so I've uh, I've been obsessed with uh, of Animal Crossing for years, and so I was always curious what would happen if you made a multiplayer Animal Crossing, an MMO Animal Crossing, um, and so so that's what we're building. We're building this sort of small village simulator with like you know forty other people living in a village for an extended period of time. Uh, like months, months or years that they live together in this one place, and they decorate it and build it and update it and so on and so forth. An MMO Animal Crossing style game in virtual reality. Yeah, it's, right now it's for the Daydream. It may move elsewhere, but it's it's for uh, the Google Daydream. Um, and uh, you know, it's very it's very experimental. Um, but I mean, that uh, sounds like properly kind of. You're well into sort of the Matrix territory or Ready Player One territory there, because you're replicating life—a different, uh, not life, but like a, a society, I suppose. You know the things that most people deal with on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, it's it, and that to me is a fascinating space. Um, it's like we we spend so much time trying to get an individual human interacting with these artificial people in games you know like what is this how how do we build a nice and ai for this npc so he can deliver lines to the person and it occurred to me that that is incredibly isolating um what would happen if we could build a space where people interact with people and it's a positive engagement it's a positive relationship building opportunity that's amazing. Um, so, so that's sort of the that's that's the big that's the big design goal, both for both for our Steambirds MMO and for uh, Beartopia. Um, and we've done a, we've done a whole bunch of like I've been deep into the psychology on like how people interact and how friendships are built, and I, I love I, I adore psychology, um, and just understanding like okay, why is it that when you put a bunch of people together, it turns into this total disaster? <laughs> um and uh uh the, the 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 wonderful thing about that is there are solutions we've experimented with a bunch of them and they actually work so um just be putting people together does not need to be a negative experience it can be a hugely positive experience and uh, without wanting um, to go so off what, on a, yeah. a a total tangent here but i find this incredibly fascinating while you were saying all this about you know how do you how do you stop things devolving into chaos I was thinking, you know, surely that depends on what they can do. You know, you could theoretically just not let anyone do anything negative, like not not, not give them that kind of verb in the game, you know? Right. If you look at things like uh, Journey, um, that's exactly what Journey did, right? It uh, it basically you can you can flash at each other, I think, is the main thing that you can do, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
but you can also like follow each other, and it's it's if you follow each other, it's a little faster. Um, the uh, there's a there's a class of uh, sort of game mechanics economics, which is um, zero sum uh, mm-hmm. mechanics and non zero sum. So zero sum is um, there's a cake on the ground. Um, I take the cake. You don't get the cake. Sorry, I stole the cake from you. Now you're angry at me because I stole the cake from you. You come, you beat me with a stick and take the cake back from me. Instant bad mojo all around because there's only one cake. Um, Non-zero-sum mechanics are, there's a cake on the ground. I take it from you. There's another cake on the ground. Um, You can take the cake too. In fact, the cake has your name on it. I can't even take your cake, you know? It's just, it's set up so that there's a cake and we both get our cake and everyone's happy. Um, so um, you can build a lot of these things into games. For example, um, uh, League of Legends has, uh, is it last hitting? Yes. Where the last person who hits a, an enemy gets, gets the XP. And it's this, uh, that's an example of a zero-sum mechanic. Whoever gets it, gets it, and everyone else doesn't. Um, in uh, Realm of the Mad God, we did something where... Um, I shoot the enemy, you shoot the enemy, there's another guy who's not even shooting the enemy, uh, the enemy dies, everybody gets experience points. Um, because chances are, like, it's, it doesn't hurt us to be generous. That's a, that's a beautiful, positive uh, message to end on. Let, let's wonder how we can elaborate that into the wider world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that, Daniel. Um, is there anything, if there's anything that kind of hasn't come up that you wanted to mention, uh, please do so now or just let people know where they can find your games on the internet, etc. Oh, yeah. Um, so we're, we're on Steam. We're on, um, we're on uh, iOS and Android. But if you go to um, spryfox.com, you'll find all the stuff we've, we've built. Um, there's, there's Alphabear. There's, you know, Steambirds. There's a bunch of, bunch of good stuff there. Was that okay for you, Daniel? Did you enjoy the, the chat? Yeah, this was this is this was lovely. Good, good. <laughs>